Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Penelope Umbrico. Earlier this month, the Milwaukee Art Museum debuted Penelope Umbrico Future Perfect, the artist's first major museum exhibition. It features over 30 installations as well as photographs, books, and video installations. They demonstrate the range of Umbrico's exploration of how images traffic through digital networks. The exhibition was curated by Lisa Sutcliffe. The museum did not publish a catalog of the exhibition. Umbrico is also showing new work at Mark Moore Gallery in Culver City, California. That show, titled Bad Display, is on view through June 18th. Penelope Umbrico is among the leading artists exploring the consequences, often unintended, of photography's migration to digital. The Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut, and the Museum of Contemporary Photography at the University of California, Riverside, are among the museums that have given Umbrico solo shows in the last couple years. She's also been the subject of three monographs, and her work is in the permanent collection of many museums, such as the Guggenheim, LACMA, the Metropolitan, MCA San Diego, SF MoMA, and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. On the second segment, a clip from my 2013 conversation with Vincent Fecto. As you've probably heard, SF MoMA reopens this week after a massive expansion. There are two Fectos on view, untitled works from 2010 and 2012, both promised gifts to the museum. Fecto's most recent exhibition was, You Have Did the Right Thing When You Put That Skylight In, last year at the Kunsthalle Basel. But first, Penelope Umbrico, after the break. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness. Featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilius Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. And we're back. Penelope Umbrico, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You're best known, of course, for being interested in, engaged with, perhaps even obsessed with, the profusion of digital images. Does that go back to when you were an art student, before you were an art student? How did you come to be interested in, in, in that? Well, before I was an art student, there were no digital images. Only barely, though. Oh, no, not even. I mean... Late 80s? Well, I was... I mean, I guess when you're talking about... MFA, then yeah, maybe there were a few digital images. They were so tiny that most of those are not worthwhile looking at, actually, because, you know, but when I was an undergrad, it was 76 to 80. So there were no digital images. I mean, there were, I guess, but they weren't, they weren't accessible to anybody who wasn't a scientist, basically. And you, you were a painter in your undergrad days? Yes. Painter, sculpture, video, well, multimedia. I did some video which was like right at the beginning of video. But I think maybe what led me to working with photography in general is I've always been interested in 
what people make for other people, like how people see the world, not how I see the world, but how other people see the world. And looking at other people's photographs or looking at how photographs are produced and shared is just always been really fascinating to me. Do you know why or did it, were you just, did you just, were you just kind of led to it? Actually, it's interesting. I've had a conversation about this with the curator of the show in Milwaukee, Lisa Sutcliffe, and realized for the first time that it may have had something to do with the fact that both my parents were classical musicians. And, and in general, what that means is taking something, some music that's already been produced and interpreting it. And so I think that was like a really huge part of just not of anything I ever really thought about, but maybe what is kind of inherently a part of how I think that, that I'm interested in expression, but I'm interested in expression as it pertains to what's already there somehow. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that That's a kind of new idea for me to think about in terms of music and what, and what that might have meant to how I think about the work that I do now. But I do know that from a really young age, I remember making things out of things like figures out of, out of matchsticks or bobby pins or furniture out of mat, you know, matchboxes and spools. And, you know, so always finding things and repurposing them. So I think that might also have a little to do with that, that's interesting because your Sons from Sunset series, which is the series that includes printouts of isolated suns of pictures of sunsets, pictures that you've taken from Flickr and that you've been working on for about 10 years now, you reprise the theme, If that, in my mind that's a music term, but you reprise that theme in different sizes with different pictures. You kind of created the thing from someone else's thing and then reinterpret it each time you show it or make it. Yeah. It's actually interesting to think about it in those ways. The different, the various uh, ways that I show it has more to do with the set of conditions that I'm showing it in. So, so that project, you know, if I have a really long wall, then I have to go find more sunsets that I can crop suns from to fill that wall. But the, the logic of that piece is that it fills the frame of vision of the viewer. So if it stops before the wall stops, it's as though there's a finite number of suns. And so I really want it to feel like it's filling, you know, that there's as many there as there can be. And, and you can theoretically make it forever, just like somebody can theoretically play Mozart. Yeah, forever. exactly. And, and theoretically, this is the one and only piece that I've ever made that I feel like when... When I don't want to make it anymore, I have to give it to someone else to make because, because, but it's, it's partly, it has to do with the fact that, you know, that, that piece started because I wanted to know what was the most photographed object in the world. And, and I went on to Flickr in 2006 because Flickr was a much more kind of social photo exchange site than it is now. Now it's sort of like a stock site, but but then it was like Instagram is now and and sunsets was the most tagged image then, which in itself is kind of interesting that, you know, maybe there were more pictures of babies, but you wouldn't ever tag your picture of your baby, baby, right? You would tag the name of it. So, so sunset in 2006 was the most tagged photograph. And I just found that really fascinating that like we only have one sun, but yet it is the most prevalent, you know, it gets subsumed into this kind of electronic, cold, blue space when it's hot, warm, and, you know, makes us feel good or whatever. So, so that's what drove that piece. And, and the fact that there were 554,000 was phenomenal to me. So the numbers became part of the logic of the work. And then every time I showed it, you know, they were like, another couple million more. So that, so every time I show it, I actually title it the number of hits that I get when I search Flickr for sunset when I'm making the piece. And so that becomes a kind of individual marker. Plus I put the date in. So for me, that's the more, that's the, that's the iterative, iterative aspect of the work in that 
it's just constantly growing. And so it has to keep going because, you know, at some point there's going to be 60 million. Net, right now there's 38 million. When I started, there was 554,000, you know. At some point there's just going to be, you know, it's just going to keep going until Flickr dies and then I can stop the pace. But if Flickr doesn't, then, then if I can't do it anymore, someone else is going to have to do it. Yeah, because the sun keeps rising and setting, right? I kind of love that in the many interviews you've done about this piece, which is your, your most famous piece, you you pretty much never make a link between the beginning of your idea and how important and intrinsic the sun was to to the founding of the medium of photography. I mean, now we have flash and, and, and you can make photography with, with other kinds of light, but but in the beginning... And I, was that really not important to you or does it just get left out because it's so evident? It's really important to me, but it's interesting that, I mean, what a brilliant thing for you to say. I've never actually talked about it in those terms before, like a couple of years ago when I started to work on a project called Shallow Sun, which is taking those images. You know, I've done a lot of projects with those images and one of them is to make a video out of it. So I have, you know, I, I, I got a bunch of the sun images that I found and, and put them into Final Cut and then made a, um, a slow tr dissolve between each one. And the, the pixel, the resolution of each image is slightly different. So when there's this dissolve, it creates this kind of moiré pattern. Mm -hmm. And then I re-videotaped it with an iPhone off of my computer monitor so the pixel, well, the resolution of the screen of the monitor in relation to the resolution of the, the sensor in the iPhone creates this a third moray on top of that. And what ends up happening is the sun actually kind of dissolves and then emerges into the screen. It just completely dissolves apart into this kind of crazy moray thing that's happening. And then it goes back into a sort of semi-visible replication of a sun but then it dissolves again and and the thing that I was thinking most about that was that the screen has replaced the sun and one of the things that I did in that project I showed it at the Aldridge Museum which has in Connecticut Connecticut yeah. and they have a built-in camera obscura in the building and so we made a, a we made a housing for a, an extremely bright monitor on which we played this sunscreen video that I made. And so that is shining into the cam camera obscura. And so what you're getting is the screen light projection of a sun inside the camera obscura, which does refer back to the beginnings of photography. Reflexivity is fun. And I, I want to come back to the way you migrate ideas between media or platforms, if you will. But one, one last question on, on sunsets. You told Mark Alice Durant that you were, quote, haunted by the popularity of that piece, uh, and it's wildly popular, and that you found its popularity, quote, kind of annoying. I think I sort of get that, but but I wonder why. why? <laughs> it's funny, you know, when, and this is something I, I, when I give a talk, I talk about, and I, and I have screen grabs of this in at the Milwaukee Art Museum. But uh, when I first showed that piece in 2008 at the New York Photo Festival, I gave a talk and then like a week later, I happened upon a Flickr discussion board. So a week later after I gave this talk, I heard a, um, I, I found a, a Flickr discussion board on Flickr. And it was this photo group that had come to see the show and then heard me talk and they were really angry at the fact that I had used images from Flickr and complaining about not, you know, respecting the terms on Flickr and the terms of use or the terms of service. And one of them said, yeah, she's lazy, not even, not even, you know, taking effort to ask people if she can use their son, asking permission if she can use their son. And she's disingenuous or lazy, not taking the pictures herself and then not asking if she can use and disingenuous or something about like not like had something to do with owning the circle of the sun. Cause I had said that really nobody owns the sun. The sun isn't authored, but like we all own the sun. 
And then after this tirade, she said, although I like the work the very best in the show. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, like, all three of those things, were, they just taught me a lot about the work, actually. And, you know, the, this notion of attribution, which made it really clear to me that the work was not about individuals, it was about the collective. And, and if you wanted to claim that kind of authorship with an image like a sunset, basically, you're denying the whole entire reason that we take sunsets to begin with, that, you know, we sort of participate in this collective ritual thing that we've done forever, right? And, yeah, so, but then this idea of loving it the best. I, so this is what happens, is that people who love it don't understand, like people who love it without the critical, understanding the critical relationship I have to the work, kind of love it blindly, I think, without... Although it's such a clear thing that you can, you can, as an adult, stand in front of it for, you know, a minute and immediately understand and, and figure out the conceptual underpinnings. But it's also so visually beautiful that you can be a two-year-old and approach it. I've seen this at art museums. You know, you can be a two- or three-year-old and approach it and figure it out, but in a very different way because, you know, you're a two- or three-year-old, and, and, and love it in a very different way. It, it, it's both solvable and understandable across a range of understandings and ages. Yeah, I mean, I guess I get that, and I like that about it. it of course, it's, it, you know, that's one of the things. That's why I have to keep making it. It's, it's a populist kind of work on the one hand. On the other hand, it's really critical of that kind of populist work. It's, it's, it's critical of the populist practice that it derives from in a certain kind of way. And it's, it's not completely critical. It's also celebratory in a sense because, but it does raise this issue of the difference between, you know, the, the relationship between the individual and the collective. And I guess I feel too many times that people just want it because it's beautiful and not because they're really interested in engaging in that, that dialogue. It's a piece that also reminds me how important the relationship is between artworks and critics and historians. I mean, if we take pictures, you know, that I work with every day, like Carlton Watkins's 1861 Yosemite pictures, today we just see them as beautiful, but at the time they were intensely political. Yeah, that's an exact, that's a really good example. Out of context, yeah. So, and it's not anything that I really feel like I can do anything about either. Like it's, it's and it's fine, but... It just gets, what did you say that I said to, to Mark? Well, your words were, were great and really specific. You said you were haunted by the popularity of the piece and that you found that popularity kind of annoying. Yeah, I guess it's just, it's annoying when it's the first thing that someone, okay, I'll tell you really why it's annoying. It's annoying because I think I've done other projects that are actually, that are as conceptually complicated, but not quite as seductively beautiful. And they don't get as much play because they don't have that kind of seductive beauty. and Or primal relationship with a thing. I mean, you know, humans have a relationship with the sun that's probably biological and evolutionary. I mean, there's, there's just all, probably almost nothing like right, it. Right, exactly. So that's why it's kind of annoying because, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a funny... The art world hates popularity and the art world wants popularity and it's a never-ending cycle of self-love and self-loathing well yeah i mean it's not so much about self for me it's not that it's just that no i mean i mean broadly i mean <laughs> i would prefer to you know actually i i'm working with a curator um right now who well i just finished a show in switzerland in this small little museum in Ville bien called it's called photo forum pascar and we hadn't met but the first thing she said to me when we skyped was I like the sun's work, but I don't want to show us. <laughs> and I immediately loved her for, for having understood the kind of, um, you know, like she, she said it gets so much play and I want to show you, show something different that you do, you know? So you mentioned a moment ago, different ways in which some of your ideas and pieces exist. So let's talk about four photographs of rays of sunlight in Grand Central Station, which is um, an idea or piece that you have made into both a photographic installation 
and a, a video installation. We'll have an image of the photo install up on manpodcast.com, and we'll also embed the video, which your gallery put up uh, on the web earlier this year. First, you, you obviously wanted to address this piece and other pieces in, in multiple formats. Is that a foundational thing for you? Is there an, a, a reason that, that multiple formats is interesting or important? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily for all of my work, but for a lot of the work, because I find it online, I'm finding digital files, and those digital files really have no standard substrate that they belong to. They they really belong to no standard, no substrate whatsoever, actually. And so whenever I'm working with a particular set of images, often the either the, the you know, what the original source was or what the ob- object that's pictured was will will start to define the kind of substrate that I think about it, sh- you know, that I think that it should be on. The four photographs of Grand Central were really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One was that there are a number of images of those rays coming through Grand Central Terminal through the windows. And there's a number of reasons why historians think that that was, that happened, you know, possibly because lots of people were smoking inside, but also because of the steel, the steel and steel tracks and wheels or whatever, creating steel particles in the air, whatever. But but just be able, being able to find all of these online was fascinating in the same way that being able to find the sun in such grand scale was fascinating to me. And it became also about time in a way that just the collision of train time and solar time in that photograph is fasc- is incredible, you know, that we, we got rid of solar time because of train time or, you know, standardized time because mm-hmm. of the train. And in the photograph, it's as though the sun is really insisting on still being a kind of sundial. And so when I started to find a lot of them, what was really fascinating to me was that there were, they were all online, on poster company sites and, and image stock sites, and they all had various attributions. None of them had the actual photographer. Occasionally there was a, a photographer listed, but then in another one it would be another photographer listed or another attribution. The dates ranged from, I, I think, something like 1911 to 1956 for any one of the photographs. There were other ones, like I think Versailles took a photograph there, or, you know, or there were a few photographs that were really clearly authored and we knew who they were. But but these four, they were just all over the board. So that in itself was fascinating to me in relation to the web and what the web does and how sort of unaccountable things are on the web. But then the other aspect of it was that these poster company companies would flip them, add like sepia tone to them or add a cyan kind of tone to them or or add a kind of rainbow color. They'd make them more magenta. They'd make and they'd put their logos right across them so that you, you know, you'd have to buy them from the poster companies when in fact these images are in the public domain. They're they're older than well, if they're if they're unattributable then nobody really owns them. But so that was another thing that I had started to work with, with, with those images. It started because Grand Central Terminal had their centennial. It was a couple of years ago and they asked some artists to do a piece around the terminal. They commissioned, commissioned me to do something. So the first piece I did was I just gathered all of the images I could find and put them all together at the scale that I found them. And so they're just these tiny little thumbnails and we printed them, you know, so again, these are digital files that I'm finding and they're coming from original black and white gel and silver prints. Right. So, so I thought, okay, we should print them. But then, you know, then I found, so that was the first, the first uh, installation was all these little tiny prints. And then Grand Central Terminal wanted to use that, that, that work asked me if I wouldn't mind doing a light box piece. And I was like, well, that's perfect. That's the exact opposite of the, the paper print is to put it on film and treat it and let it be a light box so that actually where the, where the rays are or where the lights are coming out. So where, where the light is coming from. 
No, it's a perfect physical metaphor. Yeah, so so we did a series of those, and those are up at Grand Central right now, actually. But I kept the scale of the file exactly the same as the scale as the file that I was finding online. So I wasn't enlarging them at all. So they're tiny, and I the reason I I did that in order to be able to show the the numbers of them too. I mean, there's just so many that have different attributions. So that's one iteration. And then the other iteration, uh, sorry, those are two iterations. The other iteration was I was, as I was researching those, like finding those images, I found poster companies that would also make canvas prints of the, of the, of the black and white, you know, print that they're selling. And so I actually, I went to the poster, I went to this poster company, ordered the black and white print that they were selling of the rays with the logo on it. So I downloaded the image, enlarged it to the scale of the canvas that they were printing on, and then sent them that file and asked them to print it. And they said they couldn't because, because it wasn't, because it was copyrighted. And I was like, well, actually, no, the image without the copyright over it, without the watermark over it, is the image that's copyrighted. I'm actually using a new image that has the copyright on it. And they said, well, no, actually, if you can find the image, if you can find the image without the copyright, we'll print it for you. We'll make a canvas for you. But we can't print the one that has the copyright on it, which was like so exactly the opposite of what, in fact, like they were basically telling me to go and steal if, if, you know, if the copyright was actually whatever. Anyway, so I ended up doing a set of canvases where I could get them printed. Like I'd send them to different places and they would print them. So there's a set of canvases that have been printed that have the copyright smashed, like right across the whole entire thing. And then the video that you're referring to is a, it's a similar video to the Suns where I just put all of the images that I could find without the copyright into Final Cut Pro, which is like a video editing software, and made a, a really slow dissolve between each one so that the sun actually looks like it's moving because they're all slightly different because people have done weird things to them. The, the sun rays move through the space slightly, and that one... I feel like is in some ways the most important of those pieces that it really makes the sun come alive in a way, but in a completely timeless way, because there's no time on the internet anymore. So it's like, it's like standard time meets solar time meets internet time. It's a six and a half minute video that loops. When I see the video, I find that it has a real narrative both in terms of because of the way the intensity of the beams of light changes from version to version, if you will, it almost looks like the light is moving, like time is passing. And then there's a way of, there's a form of time passage within the thing that's embedded in the fidelity of each image. Was narrative important to you or an accident or maybe even a happy accident? Yeah. I mean, I think that narrative, for me, narrative is really it's a word that's semantically tricky, I guess, because I think about narrative a lot, but I think about sort of contingent narratives, I guess, like things that make narratives outside of the individual piece itself or image itself. And definitely I worked on the video in a kind of, you know, it's a it's a diachronic piece. It moves through time and I wanted... I wanted the, like, technically it moves through time. <laughs> you know, there's one frame and then another frame and then another frame. So that's, and I, and I wanted the, the, the rays to follow one another. So I edited them quite a bit in order to not have big jumps from one position to another so that they do actually kind of replace each other in a way that feels like the rays are moving across the space a little bit. There's also... You know, so so that would be a kind of time narrative in a way. I I also wanted to show that half of the images that are exactly the same images are reversed. That that the the people selling these images reversed them. So there's a kind of blowout, and then they start from the other side again. 
So there's a kind of flip, which in itself is maybe a narrative. I also think that there's something about the people who disappear and appear, which speaks to, you know, that kind of photo thing of like, you know, the cliche of the every photograph is represents a kind of death because the moment after you take the photograph, that moment doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, those are the kinds of narratives I was thinking about, but I'm not sure about like storyline kind of narrative. I'm, I don't think that's what you meant, though. My guest is Penelope Umbrico. We'll be right back after a break. In Roman decor, elaborate mosaics transformed entire rooms into spectacular settings of vibrant color, figural imagery, and abstract design. On view now at the Getty Villa, Roman mosaics across the empire showcases the Getty Museum's collection of mosaics from the 2nd to the 6th century, tracing their histories throughout the Roman Empire. An online catalog allows you to come along on this journey from anywhere in the world. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. Edgar Degas, A Strange New Beauty, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Featuring over 100 rarely seen and fiercely experimental monotypes and related paintings and drawings, this critically acclaimed exhibition reveals the true extent of Degas' restless creativity and the freedom he found in revolutionary techniques. The New York Times calls it thrilling, intimate, WNYC breathtaking. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit to see this remarkable exhibition today. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by the New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the Dazzling Exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Penelope Umbrico. You, in, in so many works, address how images function as JPEGs, how they exist on and function in digital space. And I mean what I'm about to ask a lot less cheekily than it's going to sound. But if the concept behind the artwork is substantially about digital images and how they traffic, why print them out and put them on a wall? Oh, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I, because one of the things that that I think I'm trying to, well, that I do try to address in the work is the kind of lack of, it's a kind of negation. Okay. So one of the things that I'm, that I'm dealing with is a kind of negation of subjectivity and the body in real space and thinking about what happens when, for instance, my students tell me they, they know somebody's work when in fact, they've only seen it online <laughs> and or when someone tells me that they have they they know what my work is about and they've never actually seen it in person and i know for a fact that it really changes when you see it in person so so there's those kinds of responses to to actual physical works but then also the relationship of objects to image so a lot of the work that i'm that i make speaks to a kind of aftermath of easy production and after, you know, the aftermath of a kind of modernist industrial consumer society that, that just, you know, is constantly overproducing and building in obsolescence um, into the objects that we overproduce. So, so the object is really important. And a lot of the images that I'm working with are of objects that are, are no longer wanted that, you know, at one time presented themselves as a kind of promise for something. Cathode ray to television. Yeah. And flat screen televisions yeah. and executive office desks, which are huge and, you know, like the desk itself and the cubicle and things that come out of 
the ideas of height, the height of technology or the height of productivity or the height of cleanliness and clean living. And, you know, so those, those kinds of, those kinds of things are, those are the subjects that I'm working with. And the sun is a little bit of an anomaly in that discussion, but I mean, it's, it's related in that sense that it's, that I'm finding it on the screen. But so one of the things that I'm insistent on is addressing the objectness of the, the objects that I'm finding images of. So used CRTs become these prints of CRTs that, that you have, that you navigate as a, as a body in space in the way that you would have to navigate the CRT itself. And actually I don't, print everything that I make. <laughs> no, no, you don't. I don't mean to suggest you do. I mean, there, there are works that are GIFs, that are, there are works that are... Um... But I am interested in that translation of the image to the object, and the object being then the photograph, you know, as, a, as an object in the world, yeah. You mentioned the works you have made of, of desks. One of them is Desk Trajectories As Is from 2010. It's a grid of black and white pictures of pictures of desks. It's one of the many places in which your work is kind of hovers between representational and abstract. I mean, they're, they're from far enough away, even maybe only a couple feet. They're, they're just shapes. Are you interested in that space between abstraction and representation, or is it just there once you assemble a work? Oh, absolutely interested in it. And in that work, I was trying to reference a kind of modern, you know, they, they become, well, in that work, one of the things that was striking to me when I first found those desks was, well, first of all, they were really prevalent on eBay in 2008, just as the, just, that's very specific. Just as the, yeah. Just as the economy started to kind of crash. And I realized mm. that it had a lot to do with these offices were going out of business and so I would find them on eBay and office liquidation websites. And and one of the most fascinating things about those photographs is the desks were so big that they hardly fit in the in the picture plane. So they're not fitting in the offices anymore, and they're also not fitting into the into the photograph. Like they're kind of cut off, and and they started to look. You know, they're 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 surfaces being these kind of planar flat surfaces felt very modernist to me and of course they come out of a kind of modern modernist idea of working and and productivity i wanted them to refer back to a kind of modernist abstract expressionism which is why i made them black and white because photography's beginnings modern you know the modernist it is truly a kind of modernist medium when its beginnings were black and white. And I had them printed on a risograph printer, which is an office printer. So they, they do deliberately have this kind of modernist, abstract, ge geometric quality to them that, that I was thinking about. And I just recently, well, and then I made a book where I, of those desks that I printed at a, a press here called Linko Printing did this in 2009 I think and I had them printed at 125 percent ink density so that the ink never really dries on the page and when you touch it the ink rubs off on you and you leave fingerprints on on the images which are desks so that was another and, and the images kind of rub off on each other within the book too yeah right so it was kind of a, a critique of the clean empty desk, you know, that is supposed to be the height of productivity. Oh, one, one other thing about the desks or, or even really about a number of the other pieces that... Yeah, by the way, it's funny, you were talking earlier about fluidity or, or sort of shifting mediums or applying different... I forget exactly how you put it. But one of the things that I don't do deliberately is... Well, I do actually in the end do deliberately, but I, I retitle things. So Desk Trajectories was what I titled that work in 2008 and 2009. But since then, I've just called them, they're part of a, um, a project that I'm calling Out of Order. And they're just called Used Office Desks for Sale. 
So, you know, I, so I retitled them and yeah, just because I was never really happy with that first title. You, you install lots of works uh, as a grid. They're not quite Dusseldorfian typologies. They're a generation beyond that, both kind of literally and metaphorically. Is typology a word or an idea you've had to kind of kick and, and wiggle beyond? Or is it uh, a comfortable association? I think it's not a comfortable association because I don't think it's what I'm doing. I agree. Yeah, that's why I, that's why I asked. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And I think that it's a question, it's again, a kind of semantic conversation about, you know, the meaning of what a typology is. And I, th I think for me, I am definitely interested in multiples and, and multiple, you know, multiple production as well as multiple objects, which isn't necessarily a typology. And then I'm also interested in the, like, I guess the history that creates the multiple. So in the idea of the, you know, like they're so different on some ways, each one of them, but also they're there for a completely different reason than you would have a typology. So, yeah. So it's not something I've actually, the grid is something that I'm asked about a lot. And for me, the, I don't always put everything in grids, but when, when I have a multiple that fits in a rectangle, because it does, you know, like, you know, when all the images are basically the same size and the subject is equal within that, that size and the photographic medium is the medium that, that represents it the best and their standard sizes in the photographic medium, it makes sense to me not to intervene and make things different sizes, right? So then if they're all the same size, I'm not going to put my hand into a group of images and create a kind of beautiful array on, on the wall, I'm going to just let it be what it is. And that is a grid, you know, and it's like the least hierarchical way that I can imagine presenting the works that fit that, that way. But then I, you know, I just did a, a recent show um, with Bruce Silverstein, which is the same in, in the same show as, Grand Central Terminal rays of moons that I found from people on Flickr. And those were all completely different sizes and had to be sort of puzzled together because they were so different. And those sizes were de determined by the size that was available, the size of the file available on Flickr. So we'll have an image of that one on manpodcast.com too. Because it, it, you know, it, it holds together as a rectangle, but it's off grid. I don't want to ask you how you come up with an idea or how you get to something that becomes a piece because that's both vague and obvious because I think research is, you know, clearly, plainly. I mean, you spend a lot of time on eBay and other places. But I'm still interested in what catches your eyes and brain cells and how you work through an idea. So, so let me kind of get at that this way. There's a new work in Milwaukee called Made in iPhone, colon, Ansel Adams Screen Grabs at Milwaukee Art Museum. How did that come to happen? All right. Well, do you want the long story or the short story? <laughs> I mean, because it comes out of a body of work that's also in that show called Range, which is which is a project that started with Aperture. It's a re-photography series about mountains, pictures of mountains taken by Adams, Weston, other photographers. And it came out of an Aperture commission. And as with some of the other things we've discussed, you know, you, you, you kick the can down the road until you get to the can and then you kick it a little further and changing it a little bit each time. Right. And it, well, and then the premise of that project was that, uh, yes, Aperture asked, commissioned some artists to do a project with their books. And I had been noticing images of mountains all over the place and thinking that you know, I had this kind of quasi theory that the more insecure photographers, like real photographers who are concerned with the canon of photography, the more insecure photographers become about the medium, and there's cause for them to be concerned, I guess, then the more images of mountains show up, because the mountain is the most stable object in the world. <laughs> so, so, and maybe not so much anymore. And so what I did was I photographed all the mountains in the Masters of Photography series that Aperture produces 
but I did that with my camera phone and I downloaded all, every single app that I could find, camera app that I could find to re-photograph the mountains. So it was like this collision of the master and the mountain with, the, with me <laughs> not being a master and the iPhone. So the least stable of, the, of photographers and the least stable of technical photography with the most stable photographer and the most stable object. So that's what the project range was. And while I was visiting Milwaukee Art Museum for the work that I was, that I have up right now for this show, they had the Grand Teton and Snake River, which is an Adams photograph. Ansel Adams. And, yeah. yeah, Adams, Ansel Adams photograph. It has been sort of a theme in a lot of the work that I've made. So a couple of years ago, I found I had a, an intern who knew how to do this, which was really great. I learned so much from him. He was working for me for credit in the summer, and he knew how to find the geolocation of that particular... We, well, we were able to find the geolocation of that particular mountain in that photograph. And then he he found it on Google and then mapped, you know, just basically copied the Google Earth wireframe or whatever it is that 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 is on Google Earth. So we we created this little 3D anim- this 3D object that you can actually move online of Mount Moran, which is the mountain that's in Grand Teton and Snake River. And then we also 3D printed it. So those two pieces are also in the show and while I was visiting to check out the show they had the Grand Teton and Snake River image on view. So I took an iPhone picture of it, of course. And I I did want to do, you know, I, I like to make things for, I like the kind of recursiveness of having in a show something that is relevant to the space that it's in. And so it just made sense for me to take these pictures and see if I could do something with them. And really within the space of a half hour, I made that piece where I took the photograph and took another one, played with the light in the space so that it was reflecting as though it was the sun reflected off of the glass, but in the sky of the image. And then in the iPhone, you can, in the camera roll, when you're looking at your photographs, you can, which I love, I love the name camera roll (laughs) because it refers back to analog photography. Anyway, you you can move between two images so that you have like the space you have the, basically the structure, the viewing structure visible. And so I, I started to take screen grabs between the images and then screen grabs of those images so that they're, they're basically screen grabs of screen grabs of screen grabs with black bars of the camera roll between the images and to the point where the black bar was falling onto where the sun well, what I'm calling the sun, but was actually the reflection of the light in the sky of the photograph. So that's what that piece is. It's it's basically a set of, I think there's 12 images in that. Of course, there's one further element of recursiveness, and that's that Mount Moran is named for an artist, Thomas Moran. Oh my gosh, yes, right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't actually know that. Finally, in, in going through a lot of your work before our talking I found myself wildly entertained by a number of your titles. Some of them are, you know, really matter of fact, such as broken sets for a grid that shows, you know, broken TV sets. But others are are really deadpan and sly, such as embarrassing books. And we'll have images of, of both of those on the website. And, you know, the humor will be evident. You know, and it struck me that some of your ideas and artworks require explanation up front and others are clear enough such as embarrassing books or sunsets that that you can play a bit with the title does that matter to you does it does that suggest anything to you about an idea or a specific work when you can have when you can play games with the title yeah i mean i think embarrassing books is a really good example you know because those are all turned backwards and you know like who would do that you would only turn your books backwards in your house if you didn't want people to know what the book was, I guess. Or, I mean, the the actual, it's funny because it's a funny piece on a certain level, but on another level, it's just a really sad piece. It's like we've gotten to the point where we don't care what the information inside the book is. What we're really doing is just using it for its aesthetic value, right? So that's, 
you know, so kind of like you are in the piece. Yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, those are all, so those are all appropriated from consumer websites. And so I'm not doing it, but they are. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's the buck well passed. Sorry. Well, no. And, and then since then, I've actually found that you can actually buy wallpaper of, you know, that you can put on your wall of images of books turned that way. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. That makes me sad. I know. Penelope Ambrico, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really fun. Welcome back. Vincent Fecto is among the hundreds of artists whose work is on view at the new San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. As I mentioned in the introduction, Fecto's from 2010 and 2012 are on view. They're on the museum's all-new seventh floor. Fecto has been the subject of solo shows at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Glass House in Connecticut, and the Kunstmuseum Basel. We spoke in 2013 when a large group of his works was on display in that year's Carnegie International. Vincent Fecto, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Let's start by talking about the 11-work installation that's in the Carnegie International. It serves as kind of a, a mini-survey of the work you've made since 2006 works made between 2006 and 2012. And I was struck by two, well, I was struck by a lot of things, but but there are two in particular I wanted to talk about, and that is the tempting tactility of the pieces and 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 their size, the way they're scaled to, to eh, maybe not to the human body, but certainly to what you could reach. I mean, I, it's very easy to imagine that they're no bigger than, you know, kind of something you could reach around. And let's start with tactility. Is, is is attempting tactility at all important to you? Do you want them to, to tempt people? I don't know if I want them to. I don't know if I think about think about them in that sort of way. I mean, I I don't think about them installed very much. I think about them as discrete things that I make. So that and I my process is so much about the making of them that the tactility of it, I think, is just a result of the fact that they are incredibly worked. So I think that's just, that just happens because, I I don't know if that, if it attracts hands because hands have already been all over them. Maybe that's what I was going to ask next, next, if they're made out of paper mache and and that's evident from the title card in the gallery, even if, if, even if, you know, somebody's coming into, into the, into the space cold and doesn't know your work. Maybe I'm just reading in that I know your hands have been all over them, and that's a very different relationship than a viewer has to, say, a Jeff Koons. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, my my fantasy of pieces, and I spend a lot of time on each piece. I spend, I do a bunch at a time. I work on a bunch at a time, and my thought is that all that time sort of gets accrued within the sculpture. My all those thoughts, all the the music I'm listening to, all that stuff sort of builds up in the sculpture. So, so I guess I, I would think that, that that would translate then to the hands and the feeling of the hands. And, that, that, and when, my hope is that when people come and see them, that they unfold in as slow a manner as I made them, that, that that's part of the, that that sort of is built into the work. And then it sort of unravels then when it's being looked at. And I guess that could be translated to the hands and and the tactility of them do you use a brush to paint them do you use yes but i i very sloppily i was talking i was talking to a friend of mine and he was saying something about who was i i was talking to someone and they're like oh yeah but the the brush you have to worry about the brushes and i said oh i don't i more brush strokes the better. <laughs> I, I i don't um i just cover it I mean, I, it's really just about covering. And then when the color, I mean, I, I paint them with just the, the, the paper mache ones are all painted with gesso and then painted with acrylics. And then I change them after I paint them. So they're not, they're not completed after the initial painting. They, the colors change, the forms change about halfway in or three quarters of the way into making them, I'll start painting them and then they change repeatedly until somehow they're finished. That's interesting because I was, one of the things I, one of the really nice things about getting to see a large number of works over a, you know, a half decade or more 
is that you the viewer gets to see what recurs, what doesn't. And, and one of the things I noticed that recurs in the work is color and, and the application of color is not limited to particular planes or curves within the work. So just because you have a flat plane and a transition from a flat plane to a curved space, you aren't shy about kind of, maybe those two things are two different colors. The flat space is one color, the curved space is another. You aren't shy about kind of having these transitional points where the color mixes between them, where a brush stroke or, 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 or a smear or whatever heads into the next space. And I wonder if that's something of, of which you're, you're conscious or, or, or how intentional Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm totally interested in the way the paint can disrupt the form and sort of then move the form in certain directions. Uh, I feel like the work sort of develops like a, a Polaroid uh, picture. So it's over time. Like I, I, I really go into this very blindly and I start just making forms and changing the forms. And, and literally just go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, until it set, starts settling. Then they start getting painted. I continue this process over and over again. I start thinking, color, there's like a color, a, uh, I, I do a blue, it's gotta be blue. I paint it blue, that doesn't work. I change half of it, not blue. And as I, it starts becoming clearer and clearer, I can use the paint to sort of push certain things that I don't like away or accent things or move forms in a different way. So, so yeah, I'm totally into using paint as a way of disrupting the form and the way the forms are read. I noticed as I walked through the works that those points of disruption where, where, where the paint, where the color transitions across forms, that that made me physically move around the piece, that that forced me to to stop holding still. And I wonder if that's intentional, if that's something that, that you try to do with that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think of it in those terms. You know, I don't think like, oh, oh, if I do it this way, the person will move that. You know, I mean, I, I don't think of it that specifically. But, but yeah, I, I, um, I, I use paint... And, and, and form too, I, I think when it gets towards the end of making something, it's, it almost becomes about trying to force a view of trying to uh, sort of accentuate a reading or something, or not even a reading, but that's almost too specific. It's more like a feeling or a, a quality or something. So for example, I'll, I'll have a piece that's very dark or something. And I think, oh, it, it, I want to bring out this this one form that's a little bit more awkward or something, and then I'll start painting that a different color or sort of moving that color over a little bit or something, you know, if that, if that makes any sense. I mentioned the size of the works and how they're, they're human scaled, and you've talked in, in other Q&As about how casting and, and doing pieces that could be supersized and, you know, Millennium Parkified or something doesn't really interest you. And I wonder if that's because the humanness and the scale is important. Is it because you like being hands-on? I wonder why non-upsizing, or I wonder why upsizing doesn't appeal to you and in, in, in the size at which you do make works does, which may be two different answers. <laughs> I, I think there's s several reasons why I don't. I, I, I don't like working with fabricators. I don't like really working with other people people. I've had assistants help me in the past for certain groups of work where there was incredible amounts of paper mache going on um, because I paper mache and then cut away half of it and paper mache, you know, it's just this really laborious process of removal and addition, removal, addition, removal, addition. So I would, I have in the past for the last show, actually some of the biggest pieces that were at the Carnegie were for originally for a show in Germany. And they became that size because I started with expandable foam as sort of the interior form. And I, I you know, I don't set out and think, oh, I'm going to make bigger pieces than I've made. I, I don't really think that way. But I think, oh, I'm sick of these balloon things to start out. I, there's got to be another way of doing this. And then I find this expandable foam thing. And I'm like, wow, I've, you know, in three days I've made this form and 
But the thing about expandable foam is it's so easy. It got really big really fast. And so these pieces became that size basically because of the foam. And I thought, you know, and then I was, then they had to be paper mache before I could even start changing them over and over again. And I, so I had people help me or I had one person at a time help me paper mache. And, you know, I, I liked the people I worked with, but it's, it's, you know, as people, they were great, but I, I just don't like having people in my studio and I don't like that kind of process. And, and previous to that, I had made the, the, these pieces that were out of plaster and magic sculpt or this resin clay called magic sculpt that I use, that I'm using now actually. But the plaster had been cast from these clay models that I made and I had to work with someone to have them cast into plaster. And that whole process was completely unappealing to me, completely. The idea of sending this thing out and coming, having it come back as this plaster, which I felt completely alienated from at that point because I hadn't touched it really. And then I changed them. You know, that's when I started doing magic school because I got these plaster things back and I thought that they're terrible. They're not a piece. What do I do? And I went to uh, this place in um, San Francisco called Douglas Sturgis that does all kinds of sculpting applies. And I talked to the guy already there and said, you know, what do I do? He's like, try magic sculpt. It sticks to everything. So that's, I mean, this is really the way I go about making things. It's not clear and direct. So I think that answers part of your question. So I don't really like working with uh, fabricators. It's the main thing. And then I'm really into this accrual of what happens when I work with my hands. And I, I don't know another way to do that. I'm not interested in designing. I, I don't, I mean, I'm impressed with people who can design things, but I, I don't, I can't. I don't think in a straight way. I think I read that you never took a sculpture class in school. I didn't. <laughs> I took, uh, I was studied, I majored in studio art, but I was a painting major. I, you know, I went to Wesleyan. It was a very small art department. There was like one sculpture professor, one drawing professor, one painting professor. And I, I didn't even know that I wanted to be an artist. I mean, I, I initially thought that I wanted to do architecture, and but I, I really didn't. I, I didn't know anything when I got to college about art. And so maybe the value you place on handling the thing comes from a painting background. I I think it comes from being a crafty kid. I mean, I just I liked. I've always liked working with my hands. I I'm not someone who sits still very long. I like cooking, I like sewing, I like all the domestic arts. I mean, I like, I like working with my hands. I think there's something that happens, there's an intelligence of, the, of one's hands that I think is really undervalued in our society. When you look at art made by other people, art, art that you find useful, art that you find works its way into what you're doing, is that mostly painting, is that mostly sculpture, or is it mostly something else entirely, whether it's craft or architecture or flower arrangements or God knows what? I'm usually drawn to painting, but it all depends. I mean, I think the things that I find, and I, I like the way you say that when you find something useful, because that's kind of how I feel about going into an art museum. I, I'm looking for things to help me, um, not necessarily things that I can use myself, but things that seem alive to me or have some resonance. And, it, it, and I don't, it's partially what I'm bringing to the situation, but it's also what, what's there already. So it, um, I'll go through art museums pretty quickly until I find something that sort of hits me. And it could be a painting, it could be you know, a ceramic vessel. It could, I mean, it's just, but it's, I, I never really thought of that word of thinking of those experiences as useful, but that's, definitely how I think about moving through museums and through the art world and through the world in general. Because there's there's one, you know, mostly when I look at your work, mostly I think of painters and maybe Frank Gehry and maybe Ken Price. But in, in, the, in the Carnegie installation, the artist and, and period of his work that kept coming up for me was... was someone I don't think about a lot, which is Jock Lipchitz and, and his cubist sculptures, not the later figurative ones, but the cubist sculptures and reliefs from the 19 teens and 20s. And I wonder if you've looked at them. I have seen some of them, I think, at the Art Institute of Chicago. Does that? And yes, there's some, some I mean, it's, it's hard to tell what's like. The, there was a show, 
at SF MoMA of it was Matisse's sculptures, right? There was the all those. Yep. Yep. Uh, Matisse uh, painter is sculpture. Yes, and there were those weird reliefs of the back of a woman. Yeah, the backs, back one, back two, back three, back four. Blew me away. So it, yeah, so I, I didn't expect that at all. I thought I w- might be completely bored by that show, but I went and I was completely blown away. Something about that that shallow space, and and ever since that, actually, I was I've been thinking about relief forms, and the show that I'm working on now are all wall pieces. Although I relief would be a not quite accurate description of them, I think. That's really interesting, the Matisse bit. To close out the Lipchitz thought, uh, there is a Lipchitz at the Art Institute. It's about a yard tall, um, a seated figure from 1917, which is exactly kind of the period I was thinking of. And it's interesting you mentioned Matisse because much has been made, both both by critics and other interviewers, of the way your wall-mountable pieces can face either way, either face the wall or face the room. And turn upside down. Right. And, you know, that the, the they are a kind of a three, a particular 360 degree experience that they, that they are, you know, they require a traverse, if you will. And that struck me as a, that strikes me as a particularly Matesian, and, and please don't take this the wrong way, a hundred year old idea. And I guess I find it interesting that that idea, which, you know, isn't new, is, is, is still interesting and still activates work. And I wonder as you seeing as you you mentioned Matisse, if that was something you found in the work, or if you were finding something else in the backs or in or another Matisse sculpture, the backs for me were particularly striking because that for me it was something about the compression of space in those, and and the reliefs I should, the, I should, I should yeah the reliefs yeah. and this sort of this almost ham-fisted compression of space and that was very exciting to me. There's something about one of one of the things that I find that I, the one of the biggest compliments I give and think about when I see a work of art that like I respond to, it feels as if it's hard won, that it didn't come easy and and maybe it doesn't even work, but that the desire for it to work, that the artist's desire for this to work is so strong it almost supersedes the failure of what you're looking at. You know, it almost transcends this like kind of impossible thing. And I think that, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to remember. This was several years ago and I don't have those things in front of me, but I, I think that's what I was responding to in those reliefs. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.